namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa uddang dhammang sanghang nasami So one of the Buddha's one of the Buddha's great um, prodigious talents was the ability to create various uh, maps and structures in terms of teachings and practices. Uh, the aim of these maps and structures to be to lead to territory that you can't really map. You know, you know, un, unconditioned or unborn, uncreated, not conceivable. You know, uh, so there's which itself you know, even even to experience such an such a uh, have such a realization of the unconditioned is profound, but then to be able to create some maps that go to the place that you can't map is, is also awesome. And, uh, you know, it can be overwhelming sometimes, you see the amount of, of structures or themes that you could follow. You know, there's seven factors of enlightenment, five indriyas, the four satipatthanas, and so forth, and the different kinds of efforts and degrees of samadhi um, so but then really it all comes down to fundamentally you know the, the main main highway is ending uh, recognizing when one is under pressure suffering stress some kind of frictions occurring within one's mind body and mind and uh, how that can be under what one what's happening to generate that and how one can be relieved of that and then the sense of the release and then beginning to understand a process a path that can you know keep keep you from building up these stresses and pressures and no and uh, blocks and obstacles before what we call four noble truths but you know and in terms of, of that because any you know it's useful to always have another other kind of sets of references that you can you can consider because this whole process nobody wants to suffer <laughs> you know or undergo stress or get themselves caught so how come you know most everybody does it because <laughs> it's not entirely a matter of, of uh, decision or choice a lot of it's just unconscious reflexes that are happening you know pathologies you might say that we haven't really even fully fathomed we find ourselves reactive uh, habituated, addicted, attached, you know, stuck, and r- going down these, see yourself someone kind of rushing down these places where you get reactive and throw you into all kinds of misery, but seemingly sometimes incapable of doing much about it. So there's a kind of reflex pathologies, and, you know, something called thirst, tanha, 
Like it's not a decision. You don't decide to be thirsty. Craving. And clinging, feeding. Very graphic images the Buddha uses for this kind of compulsion that occurs. That you really begin to get some some recognition of when you start to meditate. You see how when there's technically there's nothing much to do. You know, nobody's bothering you. Um, you haven't got to, you know sitting in a quiet space and you can still be suffering quite a lot in that, you know, through these the wheels are turning and you don't quite know how to switch it off. Mm. Another way of, or another set, or a little, very simple, is these, uh, that we can just contemplate and reflect upon, particularly once you have it's begun to experience meditation, you, then you, you go into deeper levels, just the sur- surface activity of the mind. And at this, uh, you know, through just repeatedly placing attention and feeling some of these undercurrents. And there's a, you know, these two, two forces, sometimes we summed up as one force, called becoming, the English word becoming, which again doesn't seem to be, or sometimes trying to translate as existence, or even being, and you know, for a start, you know, one would probably think, well, what's the problem with that? You know, <laughs> being existing it sounds kind of merciless to say we shouldn't exist. Yeah. But remember, these are English translations, and the Buddha did couple it, saying, well, you know, this quality of Bhava, being, becoming, can be seen as the the craving or the pathology of wanting to be something. But also it has a a shadow, a twin, which is almost like the wanting to be nothing or the wanting not to have, the wanting to get away from, the wanting to not experience um, or to not be involved. And then there's that, that. So there's two. So he's saying actually... He doesn't teach. He doesn't teach either. Doesn't teach annihilation, nor does he teach becoming some eternal quality or another, you know, some lasting soul or self or entity. But he doesn't teach annihilation. So, it, you know, you get a sense of the subtlety of what's occurring here. And yet, also these are these two currents, bhava and vibhava, are things we can, once you've begun to, you know, highlight them, you can see them happening. Uh, on a on a much uh, more obvious level, often it's to do with a sense of security and the sense of self identity. You know, I am this, and what we find ourselves when we say I am this, it generally means I am. You know, probably most of us wouldn't think we're necessarily a body. We might think we're in a body. But we might very much identity with our, uh, uh, identify with our position, our role, our function, um, an assessment of how well we've done today uh, or in life, you know, uh, and that that being quite instinctual. Somebody says, you know, you thought, how are you? you? Think well, and you run through the list of things where you failed or succeeded, what people think of you, whether you got promoted or sacked. Um, whether you're respected or not respected, 
um, you know, things like that. You, you look, look in those areas for a uh, sense of, you know, something that's really solid and substantial that I can claim as my own. You know, and that seems pretty, pretty natural. You know, I'm a free person or an honest person. So that kind of thing. Or also um, we can look at maybe start to see, you know, things that we have not got involved with. We define ourselves in those ways, oh, what I am or what I'm not. It's defined very much in terms of a summary of our actions. And also how we're, we're seen and held by others. And of course, you know, the problem with this is that it's kind of endless because, you know, no matter what you've done, well, then there's the next day, isn't it? It's like being a football team. No matter how many, how many wins you've had, as soon as you lost the next game, you feel like a failure. <laughs> you know, but how, who can keep winning all the time? And yet that's the kind of, that's the, the unconscious attitude, isn't it? We've got to win every match, and yet nobody's going to do it. Sooner or later, there's going to be that crash of, you know, booted out, thrashed, trounced, you know, team lost. And that's pretty much like, uh, you know, you can't keep becoming a success. And whenever that, whenever that stops, there's a, fe- there's a sickening feeling, a disappointment, lurch, loss, you know. So you see how far does becoming get you, you know, before you know, all those, those assessments that one makes come up with negative remarks. And even, you know, in terms of how one is with other people, there's going to be times when, you know, there's dis- disagreements, conflict, people dislike you or you're not seen as good enough as where you should be. You know, either you don't talk enough or you talk too much. or whatever, you know, the the ways in which we can assess each other. So so sooner or later you don't get it right. And this can be, this whole process of trying to be right and get it right and be a success itself can be really stressful. And it's something that's fed into, isn't it, in, in the society, to try to be a success and a winner on all levels, not just in your job, in your looks, in your talents, in your, you know, relationships. Have you been a good mother, a good father? Have you done a good job? Uh, you know, have you got check all the boxes? And somewhere or another, there's a red pen saying, could do better. <laughs> could have done better. Because it, it, it doesn't, you know... Happened that even the Buddha was blamed and accused of not being good enough <laughs> by his own by his own cousin Devadatta, a monk. He wasn't strict enough or strong enough or something or the other enough. So it happens to everyone. So you know, alternatively, we can think, oh well, you know, probably something rather rude, but basically, enough of this. <laughs> so I'll drop out. You know. I don't want to be part of the game. Yeah. But you realize in, in 
being a human being, you can't exactly drop out either because uh, you still have to function within some sort of uh, society, um, you know. And then it can bring up a, a feeling of indolence and, and carelessness. It doesn't really matter anymore. So the, there's and the, the basic line I would suggest that the Buddha presents is is there is a, there is a, a need for becoming. But what is what it is that becomes is not your sense of self, but skillful mind states. He said one should indeed put forth effort to sustain and allow and cultivate skillful mind states so that skillful mind states come into being. Hmm. And but then the the snag is when those nine states are identified with I am one of these. I'm like this, and then the pride or the conceit or the looking down on others, praising oneself, disparaging others occurs. Hmm? So what skillful mind states? You know, uh, so basically we have the headings of virtue, morality, meditation, samadhi, and discernment, wisdom. You know, things that we can see, that anything that goes in towards uh, clarifying and strengthening those is the best kind of becoming. So this is, you might say, you know, one of the fundamental themes of this of this map of the Buddhist path is that there is a becoming, there is a a skillful effort to be made towards something, you know, to arrive at in the future, but that arrival itself is released from identity. You're saying this is not me; it's just what's happened. This has come around through skillful conditions. This has come around through training. Uh, I am, you know, I'm pleased that this has occurred for me but it's not mine. And that's, again, much more than just an idea, but a real sense and experience of that. And it occurs at the same reflex level that tends to automatically keep assessing and defining oneself as something or the other. At that level of reflex, that reflex can be quiet. So the hallmark, generally, of, of beings you can trust is their sense of uh, both they have good standards you can perceive in terms of their virtue, in terms of their composure and clarity, in terms of their discernment, but also they have modesty. They're not making a big deal out of themselves. This is kind of a very simple way you can really find beings you can trust in, in, in terms of uh, life practice. One of the most skillful things that we do in uh, in Dharma practice is this ability to to just uh, assess and begin again. You know, one would say the most uh, fundamental teaching is quality of intention, which means how you direct and steady your directions, where you're going, what you're doing, how you're acting. You you. You make a good aspiration to act in terms of truth or peacefulness or purity or good states, and you do the best you can, and then you assess how did that work, 
and then you begin to see that that was a little bit off, it got fuzzy there, lost it there, that's, and then you keep re-establishing that. Yeah? So you get this sense of almost like washing a shirt. You get some crunk, you know, creased up thing, which really feels like a mess, looks like a mess, and then you start working it. And first of all, kind of a lot of the grubby stuff comes out, and it looks a bit better, and you see, oh, there's still a little bit messy, I'll tidy that up. Uh, and you just, so that sense of continual uh, ongoing intentionality. Along with the recognition that you're never going to make a shirt into a, into a, into a pair of trousers, you know. You know, as they say, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> so, you know, the, you can get the intentionality can be strong and clear, but you actually, you know, otherwise you can't, can't necessarily always, uh, uh, you know, come up with the great ideas or the, the inspiring solutions, but your intention is clear. And so one of the things we repeatedly do, you know, on all levels, like you, every day you're, it's encouraged every day you just check with yourself, how was it? Where was I getting st- stuck today? Where was I getting released today? Where there was a sense of happiness and harmony today? Where there was conflict in oneself, you know, in terms of how we live with others or what one's doing? And it's going to keep coming back to that. So you try to learn that intention. Is, you know, is encouraged once you do this at least once a day. And it's not a harrowing experience of what should I be? Why am I not this? How, but it's the recognition of what, what's, what kind of mind states and emotions pass through today and, uh, you know, how did I operate with that? Where did I get myself, where did I get reactive to it? Because there's also, you know, we look at things like whether we're, things like physical sickness means that certain energies aren't going to be present, but you can keep your intention clear. So this is a kind of basic practice that one is encouraged to do in terms of behavior. And, uh, and then in meditation, one of the, you know, the fundamental thing one does when one meditates is keep bringing your mind to one particular theme or point. You know, it could be breathing in, breathing out, basic theme. You keep bringing your mind to that. And most people's minds will not stay there. Sometimes people can can hardly find it in the first place, but most people's minds will not stay there, they'll run off. But the real skill is the acknowledgement, the pause, letting the energy, unhooking the energy. You know, if your mind state is revved up and running onto something, you acknowledge, hey, what's happening? interrupt it with what's this or what's happening now pause look into that relax, soften let the energy calm down coupled with returning to the theme so it's uh, if you don't have a theme to return to it's very difficult to do the uncoupling you know you've got nothing to return to, the mind just tends to run and run and run. After a while it will kind of run out of steam, you know, so so it will run run out of steam and be quiet for a moment. And 
And exactly how you bring it in is perhaps a matter of individual choice or individual possibilities. The sense of bringing it back is in order to see and to realise what one's mind has flooded with or been swamped by or been driven by can be let go of. And that's, that's a benevolent experience. It's not a punitive experience. It's not a castigation, you know, not a blaming experience. It's an experience of, oh, oh that's, I can check that, let go of that, come back to that. And without a reference point, it's difficult to go through that. Although one's reference point might indeed be rather broad, like I'm just sitting a sit here, keep coming back to that. Could be a space reference, you know, just be in a sense of spaciousness and not go into those, you know, agitated habits. Just keep relaxing that. But uh, generally, the theme of something actually quite tangible that you can refer to, that you get familiar with, you keep returning to it so that you trust it. It's not a source of competition for who's got the best breathing, who can do it the best. Which is kind of what can happen on an unconscious level. We all feel intimidated by people who are really good at this kind of thing. Not as good as. But you can... I remember I was teaching a retreat one year on mindfulness of breathing and one of the retreatants had hay fever and allergies so his breathing was just really a mess. Um, So his practice was just to intend, you know, to keep coming back to that to that state and relax the aversion and the worry and the, and the criticism and the feeling of inadequacy just actually keep coming back to that particular state just as it was it's that you know it hasn't chosen to be sick haven't chosen to have an allergy you know but because I, I can barely feel breathing in breathing out but at least as that continued attention, just to keep coming back to that state where one's, you know, when one is meeting, one is acknowledging, you know, and then letting go of that uh, self-judgment and uh, assessment, which is very predominant in, in uh, Western societies. So this becomes quite a, a topic because uh, you know people are not innately self-judgmental, but because our society is so built around performance, getting things done and being good at things, and that's kind of drummed in from day one. There's no sense of work, whatever you are is okay, or maybe there is for a few days. <laughs> But it, uh, you know, gradually the, the criteria set in. So there's a continual feeling if you're not quite as good as you should be or could be. Mm. And that keeps people driven, pressurized in order to succeed. And on our kind of social work level, it has its good results. You know, we're able to do amazing things. You know, particularly in the West, incredible inventions and technology and science and skills and you know which is indeed impressive but also enormous amount of people 
neurotic, depressed, anxious, suicidal, because cracking up under the pressure of it. So it becomes very important, not just in meditation, but in life in general, to see, well, what was your intention? Did you keep coming back to that? And then whether it was good or bad, you let go of the result, which means you don't, you don't dismiss the result. We say, well, that's causes and conditions. It was like that. It's not actually something I have or own or belong to. That particular theme, that kind of refrain. When you do this in meditation, it does build up in terms of both calm and insight. The calm, because if you keep repeatedly coming back in a skillful way, in a way that's composed and clear and peaceful and simple, the mind, the mind's energy starts to entrain to that and starts to enjoy it. It starts to become something that you, you, the mind is pleased by. But if, of course, if you beat it and nag it, it doesn't. And the insight is to recognize whatever's arisen has definitely been arisen through causes and conditions. You know, that is, there was some effort and intentionality behind getting into that particular state. It wasn't yours or yourself. It was just something that was, came around through particular intentions and, and efforts. So when you look into something like that and you begin to, you know, get a feeling for it, what that really means, how it feels. That in a way, what becoming and being is about is very much a time sense. It's an identity sense, building up a sense of being solid, which in many ways is something we hanker for, makes us feel secure and safe and grounded and we know where we are. And being able to relinquish that is, is a big challenge. So in order to be able to relinquish that, we have to feel that there is, we've got a, a firm uh, basis within our, within our minds. You know, whether we're, whatever we're doing or whatever we're seeing, we have some clarity, we have some wisdom and calm and kindness in ourselves. And then it becomes easier to, to let go of that. There's also the time sense, which is be- being, becoming, is very much about future, past, it's a track trajectory from the past, the present, the future. Having been what, what am I now? And being like this now, what will I be in the future? And it's this continual uh, focus that creates that trajectory. What was I, what am I, what will I be? So when you start to work on that, very much the, the sense of it, you just keep coming back to, well, it's like this now. Because what you can know about the past is it's a memory, memory distorts. Depends what kind of mood you're in. You can look back on your life and think, oh, it's a complete mess or this, that. And then other, other times it can look quite good. The future can look like roses or dread all sorts of interesting things one could do or go or develop 
or terrible things that could happen. And it's all true, you know, relatively. But what you probably know right now is that you could, five years ago, you could never have imagined being in this place at this time. Yesterday, you wouldn't know what I was going to talk about. I didn't know what I was going to talk about. <laughs> you know. So, what manifests in the present is not predictable. But if you start to learn to more fully and skillfully and wisely abide in the present, you don't need to have it predicted. You've got your you've got your skills, you've got your resources with you wherever you go. One of the things when I was considering the uh, taking up bhikkhu training, and then one of the the uh, um, things you have to do in order to do that, you have to get permission from your parents. And it's an old an old tradition because, of course, in the, in India and to a, then and to a certain extent in a lot of Asia now, the children are the insurance policy. Put it bluntly, the family is the welfare state, is the family. There's no other welfare apart from your family. That's your network. That's, that's who the people who look after you. Yeah. So if you're losing a child, you're looking after, lo- losing, you know, a carer, someone who's going to help you, someone who's going to... Um, take care of you when you're older and you're lo- losing all that so it became very apart from any sense of personal endearment as well so it was established that you can't go forth unless your parents say you're free from obligation to me which is you know it's indeed a beautiful thing a blessing it's the la- it's almost like the last gift you can give your children it's to say it's now it's up to you you know so when I, I went through this process and I, I had to write to my parents to say this is what I was intending to do for a while anyway. And then, um, you know, from my mother was some concern, well, what happens when you get old? You know, what about your national health payments? What about your pension? What about, you know, it's all right fine when you're 25 to be you know, messing around, wearing funny robes in Southeast Asia. But when, what happens when you're 60-odd or so? Who's going to look after you then? Kind of thing. It's a kind of natural, uh, in, you know, concern of a mother. And, of course, in 2025, you think, you know, what does that matter? When you get to be 60, you start thinking, <laughs> And then, but of course, the the uh, the, the the faith, or the, the also a faith with some wisdom, is to recognise well, you can't, you know, whatever. I've been a bank manager, had three kids, whatever, you know, got the house, you got university education, got a good job, got a degree, kids, house, mortgage, the whole thing. Are you happy? Yeah. <laughs> I looked at my father and thought, well, 
No. <laughs> That's what he's got. <laughs> she had two kids, but you know, he did he did pretty good with it, but worried, worn out, uh, and never an end to it. Never end to have to keep it going. I thought, well, maybe I'll try something else. And my father actually had enough to say his understanding was, well, you should do what you feel good about doing. And if I was you, I think you've got the right idea. <laughs> Don't do what I've done. <laughs> you know, if you can find another way than just the, the, the work, the job, the career, if you find another way of making yourself feel good, then why don't you give it a good try? Which was kind of uh, wise. So it was always with that sense of the best insurance, really, is if you live good in yourself, if you make your own mind good, your own heart good, you tend to attract kind of people who like that, who you can trust and be with. That's as good as it's going to get. I mean, you can still get meningitis, cancer, struck by lightning, but that happens anyway. You know? The best you can do is to be with people you can trust and feel respect for. And uh, in your own mind, to feel trust and respect for yourself. The rest of it is pretty transient. So there is something to become. But what is to become is skillful mind states. When you see the, the Buddha's path, it is very much a, it's called an eightfold path. So it's all interleaving factors such as right view, right understanding, and right resolution, right ways of thinking, speech, physical action, livelihood. Then more the back up to that, the right kinds of efforts that we make to purify, the sense of mindfulness, being able to to bear things in mind to be able to get some discernment of what one's doing. Samadhi, the sense of coming into a sense of unity, composure, concentration. Um, and then, you know, so it's kind of, it's eightfold. And it's very important to remember that because the, the fundamental quality that runs through it is the sense of right view. The right view, simply speaking, means if you put in the right causes, the right conditions, the right results occur. If you don't put them in, it's haphazard. If you put in the wrong ones, you get the wrong results. And it's that understanding that is fundamental understanding that runs right through it. So in meditation, again, you witness that. You witness that in the microcosm. And you witness it in the macrocosm, in the way you are acting and finding ourselves in our life situations. And you witness it in the microcosm, how you're operating within yourself in terms of dealing with your own mind states, uh, making peace with them, relinquishing steadying, stabilizing. And this is the skills that lead to uh, samadhi, unification of mind. Uh, and one of the features of it is it's happy, it's peaceful, it's benevolent. So it's not a forced, suppressed you know, experience, but an experience of having cleared away the obstacles and the obstructions. Then this is what has come into being. Mm. And the beauty of that is it's all very conscious. You know, we've begun to recognize what's unskillful. 
We've seen the, de- the, the seduction of it, the ambitions, the, the way we can inflate, the way we can get swept away, the, the temptations of that, the cajoling and the pressures of that. We've seen that. You really understand and see how you get caught. This is really important. It's not a sign of disgrace. It's, it's very important to see the kind of places we get caught, who we become as we get caught how righteous we become, or how full of ourselves, or egotistical we become, or depressed we become. You know, you tend to find yourself becoming something. And that's always a sign that whatever you feel yourself as being, that sense of having become something, that is what you have to see as the result of um, mistakes, you know, or, or subtle mistakes and gross mistakes. So really the, the aim in meditation is to keep using this, this theme of repetition and, and benevolent and steady and calm and peaceful repetition in order to keep cleaning out these, these tendencies, reflex tendencies, becoming, not becoming, wanting to get out. And then you've, once you find that, it's not just a, an advantage in meditation, it's an advantage in daily life. Because generally what happens for most of us is sooner or later we get squeezed. Something pushes us, something challenges us. And then the reaction comes up. Either we kind of you know, rear up, this is what I am, this is who I am, I, you know, we fill up, or we collapse, you know. Not me, nothing to do with me. <laughs> you know, when you find the squeeze or the confrontations, then we can do one of the, one of those two things. Something we just kind of fog out, or or go blank, or look the other way, or avoid. You know, it's a kind of fear reflex. Easier that way; you don't have to feel it. Or we we kind of rise up, challenge, struggle. You know. And so, because you know, that's kind of all, all the system can do. You see, that's what every creature does. You know, from a squirrel on up, you know, it'll either rear up and inflate itself, or run for a hole. And that's 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 the set. That's what you're equipped with. And pretty much that is what runs into the psychology. And human beings, you can see it very much more on the psychological sense. I mean, I can see this in my, my own mind, you know. Not want to meet things. Yeah. Or want to get on top of something. You know, want to get on top of it. Fill up, make it work, get on top of it. Or forget it, do a dive, shrug it off, look the other way. You know, these kinds of things when you get to the squeeze point. A very interesting kind of just staying in the squeeze of embarrassment or awkwardness or often, you know, conflicting scenarios and just keep acknowledging it's like this and keep the intention of clarity, peacefulness, steadiness, truthfulness. See what happens. It's the middle option. And the interesting thing, it's really the only option. Everything else is a reaction. If you want to really live a free life, 
It's not a matter of having a set of strategies that you can bring out, you know, how you can duck, how you can master, but which are, you know, strategies, uh, but, you know, which, okay. But ideally, how to live a free life is to be able to not have a strategy and to meet it directly through through practice, through purity of intention, through releasing suffering, through understanding that. Then the life is called empty. You know, it's void of self. And it's amazingly potent. Because then the system is capable of meeting challenges, being with things, being with the difficulties of life and human beings without flinching without reacting and it allows a kind of a, a state of, of basic emptying to occur that lets all the mental energies sort of start to die down and calm down and you see you know, some people are very very good at that generally it's interesting that, that in, in, uh, in the kind of training that I've had it's mostly a huge amount of it is just the being in community um, where, you know, whatever it takes to cooperate is really a, an extraordinary miracle. <laughs> when you realize the kind of differences of energies, mindsets, attitudes, you know, and the difficulties of communication, language, so forth, and all this inner stuff churning away, that the, the quality of actually cooperating and and being able to to live with that, which always puts some kind of squeeze on. But it was more or less the, the you know, the standard I came in with. Very useful because even when the, it, it sets up a theme of training that then carries through into the meditation and the meditation tends to carry it back into that, how you can, you know, rather than set just sort of set things up to go according to one's strategies, the emphasis is realizing that if we do that, we'll continue to arrange, try and arrange the world to fit my strategies. You know, other people to fit how I want to do it. Which maybe works if you've got three people, when you've got in this kind of very open communities. You can't Nobody can really operate according to their strategies. It's got to be some place of emptying to allow forms to occur, to allow decisions to happen, to see what comes out of, of, the, of the group intentionality and to look internally as one's intentions clear. What they, if they're not clear, we have to wait. Is intention skillful? If it's not skillful, we have to look at that, wait with that and then see what comes out. And it's indeed uh, marvellous that there can be this uh, um, generations, these uh, communities and, and extended communities and kind of extend for hundreds of people. So that uh, fundamental practice, you might say, of just keeping returning to the breath, <laughs> you know, when you look into that, you can see even in that there's even just in that particular thing, there's the path 
to a very wide uh, benefit and, and growth and, and release. So this to me is always you know, something one feels encouraged by. You know, whatever else the day has brought up, is breathing in and breathing out. Ability to release that. So I offer this for your reflection tonight.